So, Father, what we want to do now is to collect all these various experiences that we have faced over the course of these past days. Lay them, set them, position them at the cross of Jesus Christ. Knowing that Jesus did not stay there, but he eventually would be raised from the dead. There are happy endings when it comes to matters of Christianity. And what we love, Father, is the fact that the one who died in our place for our sins was raised on the third day, and it's your way of saying, I told you so. He is who he claimed to be. He did what he set out to do. And those who put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior understand he's the ultimate giver. He is the ultimate gift. And out of his gift, we offer thanksgiving to you. So, Father, as we continue marching through 2 Corinthians or the course of 2018, we're entering into this ninth chapter. Once again, what we're asking is that you would, that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now with that map on the screen, ponder what this farmer was having to think through. We're on a hot day in July. He was sitting in front of his shack, smoking his corncob pipe, when along came a stranger and he asked, he asked, how's your cotton coming? Ain't got none, was the answer. Didn't plant none. Afraid of the bull weevil. Well, how's your corn? Didn't plant none. Afraid of the drought. Well, how's, how about your potatoes? Ain't got none. Scared of them tater bugs. Well, finally, asked the stranger, what then did you plant? Nothing, answered the farmer. Nothing. I just played it safe. That farmer would have been able to identify somewhat with the Corinthians, and the Corinthians would have been able to identify somewhat with the farmer, you see. For you see, evidently, the Corinthians were going through life playing it safe. Not so the Macedonians to the north. Now look very carefully at the text that you spotted in verse 2. When the Apostle Paul said, I know your readiness, he says to the Corinthians, now they're in Acadia, they're in the green to the south. You see, that was the, that was the Wall Street section, Manhattan of Greece. For I know your readiness, he says to the Corinthians, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Those are the people to the north. And as you've seen your insert this morning, we, they were known as the barbarians. They were the ones who, very frankly, were not highly resourced financially. The barbaric north. Even to this day in 2018, there's tensions between the two. 
But what is fascinating to us is that the Apostle Paul is going to use the Macedonians to the north as an illustration of giving to the Corinthians, the people of Achaia, to the south. Similar to the way in which Jesus, when he wanted to teach on the matter of mercy, would choose a Samaritan to illustrate the whole idea of what it means to minister to others. As you could almost imagine, the jaws dropping as the Jewish population was listening in. Now, what God is doing at this point through the Apostle Paul is fascinating. Because in the prior chapter, Paul used financial illustrations to communicate eternal truths. Then in the opening verses of the ninth chapter, he uses geographical illustrations to communicate eternal truths. And then beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter, he uses agricultural illustrations to communicate eternal truths. We're now going to focus on the third, the agricultural. And we're going to draw out some ideas, some thoughts, some distinctives, What's involved here and what God is communicating with regard to what's described throughout these chapters as acts of grace? You remember them? For example, in the prior weeks, in chapter 8 of verse 6, complete among you this act of grace. In verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace. And in verse 19, uh, not only that, but he is appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. What's he talking about? Well, what he is saying is that if you and I are saved by grace, we then need to invest in acts of grace. Because as we invest in acts of grace, of ministering to other people, the financial illustration of the act of grace will draw people's attention to the ultimate act of grace, where Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what we're going to do now is to draw out three significant distinctives here about acts of grace that I think relate to the way in which he is now communicating to us, whether he's using financial illustrations of chapter 8, geographical illustrations at the beginning of chapter 9, or agricultural illustrations further on through chapter 9, which is what we're going to explore now as the first of the three distinctives is going to appear on the screen. And we work through verses 6 and 7 together. The number one, as we participate in acts of grace... Note, first of all, with me, the cheerful giver God respects. Now, again, this does not apply to the tithe. God demands the tithe of me. God deserves offerings from me. So now, he's, he's relating at this point to the offering, and what he wants to do is to set up a strategy for famine relief uh, to help those who are financially impoverished within Jerusalem. So he turns to the Gentile population, and here's what's fascinating. The Jewish population would have looked down upon the Gentiles just the way Achaia would have looked down upon Macedonia, and everything's being flipped. And so now, what he does at this point is he says, at this point, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the farmer with his corncob pipe is simply nodding his head. And he says, I'm just 
I'm just playing it safe. can relate, you see, those people of Achaia. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And he's drawing our attention to what are known as the laws of the harvest. It was fall. And I had left for the weekend from my school in the heart of Chicago and headed up to my Aunt Ella's farm. We all gathered together at the farm because it was harvest time. And we were involved, of course, in, in, in being able to take the produce of what had been, had been seeded back in the spring. When I returned at the end of that weekend, I made my way back down into Chicago, sat down in, in the pew at the Moody Church, and Dr. Erwin Lutzer was, he's a brilliant expositor, opening up the text and beginning to expound, and it was as if God was speaking to my heart at that point, after my own personal experience of that weekend, because he started off by talking about the laws of the harvest. And once again, the experiences of the week parlayed into the experience of the weekend. As Dr. Lutzer said, law number one, you reap what you sow. Don't expect a pear tree to grow apples. You reap what you sow. The second law, you reap more than you sow. There will always be more than what was initially introduced into the soil. But thirdly, you reap in a different season than you sow. Don't expect the spring to function like it's the fall. You're going to have to make your way through summer to get to the fall, you know. And in this culture of immediacy, what we need to understand is these basic agricultural principles and how they relate to what the Apostle Paul is now talking about here. Because if you want to have impact, you've got to understand he is now pulling together the financial, the agricultural, and the geographical. And he says, with regard to the famine relief in Jerusalem, where you're giving above your tithe now and you're ministering to those that are in need, Whoever sows sparingly, he says to the Corinthians, who like that farmer at this point, say I'm just playing it safe, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But I can see Dr. Lutzer now on the platform in the heart of Chicago as he looks out and says, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Use a whole lot of seed if you're going to have a high impact upon the culture. But he doesn't end there because you're up to the next verse. You're up to verse 7 at this point and your acts of grace that are supposed to be illustrations of the ultimate act of grace where God gave himself through Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and then says, each one, not some, he's talking to believers at this point, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, God has decided in his heart regarding the tithe, but we decide in our hearts regarding the offering, which is above the tithe. He has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, and here it ties into the first of the three distinctives, for God loves a cheerful giver. So where you see a need, 
you set out to meet that need. And you do it cheerfully. Charles Spurgeon understood that. Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastors in history, Spurgeon and his wife, according to a story that was told through the years, would sell but refused to give away the eggs their chickens laid. Even close relatives were told, you must have them, you may have them if you pay for them. And as a result, some people labeled the Spurgeons greedy and grasping. But Spurgeon was a strong man, his wife, strong woman. They accepted the criticisms without defending themselves. And it was only after Mrs. Spurgeon died that we know the rest of the story. All the profits from the sale of the eggs went to support two elderly widows in their church. And because the Spurgeons were, biblically speaking, unwilling to let their left hand know what the right hand was doing, which, by the way, is the way I play the piano, they endured the attacks in silence, the biographer tells us. You see, the sense of the cheerful giver finds its root in the fact that it's God-honoring. And we don't await for the applause of the culture saying, well done. But rather what we want is God to be able to respect because God is the God who will inspect what it is that we're all about. As we participate in acts of grace, you note the cheerful giver that God respects. And then we go in our own thought processes to the thought to the cross of Jesus Christ, <coughs> where you and I are told that Jesus Christ endured to such a degree that he, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we explore this now, and we begin to say to ourselves, I'm seeing it illustrated financially, I'm being illustrated geographically, I see how it's being illustrated furthermore agriculturally. Now the question is, am I just playing it safe? Because part of the adventure of living involves the adventure of giving. And the ultimate adventure of how the two come together is the cross of Jesus Christ where Jesus entered into this world, the adventure of living, to die on that cross, the adventure of giving, to save us from our sins, and then validates that by three days later being raised from the dead. And it was the joy that was set before him that he was able to do this. And so we now we become participants. We participate in acts of grace. It's an astounding thing. As you know, first of all, the cheerful giver God respects. You're adventurous. You're playing it safe. Because now there's a second distinctive that comes out, beginning in verse 8, down through verse 10. The second of all, as we participate in acts of grace, note with me now the faithful nature that God exhibits. We've got to look no further than God himself who is going to enter into this adventure. 
God is able. God is able. And now what I want you to notice with me, if you would take your Bible or your device, whatever, somehow you're going to be able to distinguish this. Notice with me all the awes. All the awes found in this one verse. And see how they connect together. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you've seen four awes now. Universals. He then writes, you may abound in every good work. Did you also notice how he bookended that verse? He began with, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. He ends with, you may abound in every good work. And you and I begin to ask the tough question, what is it that God wants me to do in order to be able to experience this whole matter of the word abound? That in all things, at all times, you may abound in every, another universal, good work. Well, do you remember it? been a hard winter day in the Appalachian area. The snow had piled up deeper and deeper, and mercury was dropping, and rivers were freezing, and the people were suffering. And the Red Cross used helicopters to fly in their supplies. One crew had been working day after day, long hours, and they were on their way home late in the afternoon when they, when they saw a little cabin submerged in the snow. We're told there was a thin whisper of smoke coming from the chimney. The rescue team figured they were probably about out of food, fuel, perhaps even medicine. And because of the trees, they had to put the helicopter down about a mile away. So they put on heavy packs with emergency supplies, trudged through heavy snow, waist deep, reached the cabin exhausted, panting, perspiring. They pounded on the door, and a thin, gaunt mountain woman opened the door. And the lead man gasped. As he said, we're here. We're here from the Red Cross. Well, this lady was silent for a moment. And then sighed and said, well, you know, it's been a hard winter, Sonny. I just don't think we can give anything this year. Achaia or Macedonia. Playing it safe, we're taking the biblical risk. The Corinthians need to connect, you see, with Jews in Jerusalem. And so now the Apostle Paul's savvy. He utilizes universals, all grace, all sufficiency, all things, all times. And then you notice how he begins and ends with the whole idea of abound. And that's fascinating, too, because what you and I find here is that he puts high emphasis upon the whole idea of abundance. Because in chapter 1, in verse 5, for example, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort, too. 
And then you get to chapter 4, and you're up to verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And the increase there comes from the Greek word that again deals with abundance. And then you make your way to chapter 8 of verse 2, as we've made our way through 2 Corinthians. And therefore, in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Macedonians, he adds to the Corinthians and Achaia, and you view them as barbarians, you guys are just smoking your corn cob pipes and playing it safe. Check them out. Think about what they're doing. Meanwhile, what the Apostle Paul is going to do for you at this point is he's going to hit you with another as it is written. You're up to the next verse, you see. And as you make your way into that phrase, you realize that once again, that is our commitment here. And all these services, week by week, we are concerned with what is written. Not what is our preference, not what is a pastor's opinion, but rather what is written. Because not only are we concerned with inerrancy, we are concerned with biblical authority. And so now what he does is he supports his case by drawing from the roots of the Older Testament of Psalm 112, verse 9, as it is written, he's going to support his argument. Now, get this. He's talking about God. He is distributed freely. He's given to the poor. Now, you can pause at that point and think of what are the people in Corinth of Achaia thinking? Not only has the Apostle Paul referenced the Macedonians to the north, now he's referencing God. And again, he's using a financial illustration of an eternal truth. He's distributed freely, is given to the poor. And then notice this. His righteousness, his righteousness endures forever. But now he's back, you see. He's back at it because what he wants to do is to talk a little bit more about this whole agricultural illustration. And so he adds in verse 10, He who supplies a seed to the sower and bread for food, and they know they need that in Jerusalem, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And now what you've done, because you're tracking the text here, you take his righteousness, God's righteousness of verse 9, and you draw a line down to your righteousness of verse 10. You say, but Garrett says there's none righteous. Well, now let's understand what he means here. When you and I have put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, You are declared righteous, not made righteous, but declared righteous legally. And out of the whole idea of having been declared righteous by God, we do acts of grace, which are statements of righteousness on behalf of God. And now you've drawn the line from verse 9 down to verse 10, and you see that what you are doing here is that you are multiplying your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness And can you imagine what the Jews in Jerusalem are thinking at this point as the Gentiles, who they look down upon, are now supporting them at their own point of need? And God is providing. And God is meeting the need. And you might canvas your history and say, there were times where I was wondering how I was going to make ends meet. But then I've got an Elijah story that seems to unfold in front of my very eyes. Because in 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah the Tishbite 
He says this to Ahab, who's a taker. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be neither dew nor rain all these years except by my word. And then, as it is written, the word of the Lord came to him and said, said to Elijah, Depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Pause. Do you find yourself wanting to do according to the word of the Lord? Check this out. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Daily bread. His mind could reflect back to Exodus chapter 16, where the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings, which we illustrated in prior weeks, saw manna available for them on a daily basis. And you tie those two events together with what Jesus Christ would say when he's teaching you how to pray, give us this day, not our weekly bread, our daily bread. And now you and I begin to ponder the significance, the daily grace of God. And you realize that God's grace is sufficient because back to verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work and you're nodding your head say, I, I get that. That's where I've been. As you draw the line from his righteousness now to your acts of righteousness. Verse 10. But now, now there's a third distinctive. And it comes out of verse 11, down through verse 15, that thirdly, as we participate in acts of grace, note thirdly, the thankful spirit God values. Now you're pulling your folds together. The cheerful giver, the faithful nature, the thankful spirit. The cheerful giver of verses 6 and 7, the faithful nature of God in verses 8 through 10. Now the thankful spirit that God values in 11 through 15. And I want you to notice how many times the idea of thanks, thankfulness, thanksgiving emerges. Now in verse 10, the reference was God. He who supplies. But now in verse 11, out of the one, out of the resources of God who supplies, he now says, here's your responsibility, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Notice the two every ways. Did you spot that there? So why has God been generous to me? Why has God enriched me? So that I might be generous in every way. And then he adds this, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And did you notice that the word giving is found in the word thanksgiving? And I thought about that when I came across a little story that Chuck Swindoll one time told. The tourist was visiting a village in Mexico where a hot spring and cold spring were located right next to each other. The natural phenomenon proved to be helpful to the people who brought their laundry. 
They thought they could uh, boil their clothes in the hot spring, rinse them in the cold spring. Sounds like a plan, doesn't it? Well, the tourists commented to his guide that the people must be incredibly thankful for the convenience, and the guide replied, not really. They grumble that Mother Nature provides the water and no soap. See what we're saying here? All water, no soap. Now, what God is saying to the people in Achaia is check out the people of Macedonia. What he would be saying to the Jews is check out that Samaritan. What he would be saying is go to the cross of Jesus Christ and do the 2 Corinthians 8-9 idea. As my father would put in his memo, if any check written, cross, two core, 8-9, where it reads, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And now I say, I have been enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving. I'm starting to get it. But he says, i still got more to say. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing, there's that word again, thanksgivings to God. And now what fascinates me is that word service there. Do you see it? It's right there in the text. It's from a Greek word that was used to describe the Levitical responsibilities that took place in the temple as the, as the priests would sacrifice lambs on behalf of the people. Sacrificial. What he is now doing brilliantly is that he is drawing out the Jewish history and understanding in the richness of just one word. He wants them to think sacrificially. For the ministry of this sacrificial service, think the priestly aspect of the of the work with the lambs is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many, there it is again thanksgivings, and there's givings and thanksgivings to God, and by their approval of this service, they're going to glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession to, of the gospel of Christ. And now the Jews are utterly astounded in Jerusalem at this point because they had looked down upon the Gentiles because the Apostle Paul had fully intended to go not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now the Jews are beginning to learn because of the material support, financial support they're receiving from the Gentiles that God is now at work through acts of grace among the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles can minister through acts of grace to the Jews. This is powerful stuff. It's coming full circle. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Another time, a setting in Pennsylvania, well, I'm standing at the end of a service, and a man comes up to me and he says, you know something? I've been coming in recent weeks and listening intently. You've got to know something about me, he said. So I fold my arms, and I'm waiting to hear what's coming next. And he says, he classifies himself. He says, I am a liberal. I said, well, I'm glad you're here. And he said, I am a liberal. I said, I'm glad you're here. And he said, I'm getting the impression you're a conservative. I just smiled, which is what senior pastors do quite often. 
when they get hit with something that's a bit surprising, as you wait for more to come out. He said, but here's what is throwing me. Your congregation is made up of givers. I thought that was the role of government. And I did what senior pastors do. I smiled. And I said, what God is showing you, my friend, is that God is using a financial illustration from this church to help you to understand eternal truths about Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you in your poverty might become rich. And he walked away and he kept turning around and he said, grace. And I said, you've got it. He walked a little further, turned and said, Jesus. And I said, you've got it. And then he said, no. I've got him. And he walked out the door. At that point, what do you do with that? You do exactly what the Apostle Paul does in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And he's got our attention, you see. How about your potatoes? Ain't got none. Scare them tater bugs. So finally he asked the stranger, well then, what did you plant? Nothing, answered the farmer. Just playing it safe. Are you from Macedonia? Or are you from Achaia? Let's stand together. So now, Father, we've made our way through the financial challenges described in chapters 8 and 9, preceded by the physical challenges, the medical challenges described in chapters 1 through 7. And we see how you're the sovereign God and how your grace is sufficient. And we've seen the supremacy of your grace which ties into the sufficiency of your grace. And so, Father, we understand why you didn't have Jesus say, give us this day our weekly or monthly bread. Now, grace is a daily thing. And we've got to keep our eyes open to the acts of grace that we can provide for others but connect those people to the act of grace that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ and use us to lead many, many, many people to Jesus. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.